Book Three, Chapter Four, of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico, by William H. Prescott, Book Three, Chapter Four. Desirous to keep up the terror of the Castilian name by leaving the enemy no respite, Cortes, on the same day that he dispatched the embassy to Tlaxcala, put himself at the head of a small corps of cavalry and light troops to scour the neighboring country. He was at that time so ill from fever, aided by medical treatment, that he could hardly keep his seat in the saddle. It was a rough country, and the sharp winds from the frosty summits of the mountains pierced the scanty covering of the troops and chilled both men and horses. Four or five of the animals gave out, and the general, alarmed for their safety, sent them back to the camp. The soldiers, discouraged by this ill omen, would have persuaded him to return, but he made answer, "'We fight under the banner of the cross. God is stronger than nature.' and continued his march. It led through the same kind of checkered scenery of rugged hill and cultivated plain as that already described, well covered with towns and villages, some of them the frontier posts occupied by the Otomis. Practicing the Roman maxim of lenity to the submissive foe, he took full vengeance on those who resisted, and, as resistance too often occurred, marked his path with fire and desolation. After a short absence he returned in safety, laden with the plunder of a successful foray. It would have been more honorable to him had it been conducted with less rigor. The excesses are imputed by Bernal Diaz to the Indian allies, whom in the heat of victory it was found impossible to restrain. On whose head soever they fall, they seem to have given little uneasiness to the general, who declares in his letter to the Emperor Charles V., as we fought under the standard of the cross for the true faith and the service of your highness, heaven crowned our arms with such success that, while multitudes of the infidel were slain, little loss was suffered by the Castilians. The Spanish conquerors, to judge from their writings, unconscious of any worldly motive lurking in the bottom of their hearts, regarded themselves as soldiers of the church, fighting the great battle of Christianity, and in the same edifying and comfortable light, are regarded by most of the national historians of a later day. On his return to the camp, Cortes found a new cause of disquietude in the discontents which had broken out among the soldiery. Their patience was exhausted by a life of fatigue and peril, to which there seemed to be no end. The battles they had won against such tremendous odds had not advanced them a jot, the idea of their reaching Mexico, says the old soldier, so often quoted, was treated as jest by the whole army, and the indefinite prospect of hostilities with the ferocious people among whom they were now cast threw a deep gloom over their spirits. Among the malcontents were a number of noisy, vaporing persons, such as are found in every camp, who, like empty bubbles, are sure to rise to the surface and make themselves seen in seasons of agitation. They were, for the most part, of the old faction of Velasquez, 
and had estates in Cuba to which they turned many a wistful glance as they receded more and more from the coast. They now waited on the general, not in a mutinous spirit of resistance, for they remembered the lesson in Villarica, but with the design of frank expostulation, as with a brother adventurer in a common cause. The tone of familiarity thus assumed was eminently characteristic of the footing of equality on which the parties in the expedition stood with one another. Their sufferings, they told him, were too great to be endured. All the men had received one, most of them two or three wounds. More than fifty had perished in one way or another since leaving Veracruz. There was no beast of burden but led a life preferable to theirs. For when the night came the former could rest from his labours, but they, fighting or watching, had no rest day or night. As to conquering Mexico, the very thought of it was madness. If they had encountered such opposition from the petty republic of Tlaxcala, what might they not expect from the great Mexican empire? There was now a temporary suspension of hostilities. They should avail themselves of it to retrace their steps to Veracruz. It is true the fleet there was destroyed, and by this act, unparalleled for rashness even in Roman annals, the general had become responsible for the fate of the whole army. Still there was one vessel left. That might be dispatched to Cuba for reinforcements and supplies, and, when these arrived, they would be enabled to resume operations with some prospect of success. Cortes listened to this singular expostulation with perfect composure. He knew his men, and instead of rebuke or harsher measures, replied in the same frank and soldier-like vein which they had affected. There was much truth, he allowed, in what they said. The sufferings of the Spaniards had been great, greater than those recorded of any heroes in Greek or Roman story. So much the greater would be their glory. He had often been filled with admiration as he had seen his little host encircled by myriads of barbarians, and felt that no people but Spaniards could have triumphed over such formidable odds. Nor could they unless the arm of the Almighty had been over them, and they might reasonably look for his protection hereafter, for was it not in his cause they were fighting? They had encountered dangers and difficulties, it was true, but they had not come here expecting a life of idle dalliance and pleasure. Glory, as he had told them at the outset, was to be won only by toil and danger. They would do him the justice to acknowledge that he had never shrunk from his share of both. This was a truth, adds the honest chronicler, who heard and reports the dialogue, which no one could deny. But, if they had met with hardships, he continued, they had been everywhere victorious. Even now they were enjoying the fruits of this, in the plenty which reigned in the camp, and they would soon see the Tlascalans humbled by their late reverses, suing for peace on any terms. To go back now was impossible. The very stories would rise up against them. The Tlascalans would hunt them in triumph down to the water's edge. And how would the Mexicans exult at this miserable issue of their vainglorious vaunts? Their former friends would become their enemies, and the Totonacs, to avert the vengeance of the Aztecs, from which the Spaniards could no longer shield them, would join in the general cry. There was no alternative, then, but to go forward in their career. And he besought them to silence their pusillanimous scruples, and instead of turning 
their eyes towards Cuba to fix them on Mexico, the great object of their enterprise. While this singular conference was going on, many other soldiers had gathered round the spot, and the discontented party, emboldened by the presence of their comrades as well as by the general's forbearance, replied that they were far from being convinced. Another such victory as the last would be their ruin. They were going to Mexico only to be slaughtered. Until at length the general's patience being exhausted, he cut the argument short by quoting a verse from an old song, implying that it was better to die with honor than to live disgraced, a sentiment which was loudly echoed by the greater part of his audience, who, notwithstanding their occasional murmurs, had no design to abandon the expedition, still less the commander to whom they were passionately devoted. The malcontents, disconcerted by this rebuke, slunk back to their own quarters, muttering half-smothered execrations on the leader, who had projected the enterprise, the Indians who had guided him, and their own countrymen who supported him in it. Such were the difficulties that lay in the path of Cortes, a wily and ferocious enemy, a climate uncertain, often unhealthy, illness in his own person, much aggravated by anxiety as to the manner in which his conduct would be received by his sovereign. Last, not least, disaffection among his soldiers, on whose constancy and union he rested for the success of his operations, the great lever by which he was to overturn the empire of Montezuma. On the morning following this event, the camp was surprised by the appearance of a small body of Tlascalans, decorated with badges, the white color of which intimated peace. They brought a quantity of provisions and some trifling ornaments, which they said were sent by the Tlascalan general, who was weary of the war, and desired an accommodation with the Spaniards. He would soon present himself to arrange this in person. The intelligence diffused general joy, and the emissaries received a friendly welcome. A day or two elapsed, and while a few of the party left the Spanish quarters, the others, about fifty in number, who remained, excited some distrust in the bosom of Marina. She communicated her suspicions to Cortes that they were spies. He caused several of them, in consequence, to be arrested, examined them separately, and ascertained that they were employed by Sicotencatl to inform him of the state of the Christian camp, preparatory to a meditated assault for which he was mustering his forces. Cortes, satisfied of the truth of this, determined to make such an example of the delinquents as should intimidate his enemy from repeating the attempt. He ordered their hands to be cut off, and in that condition sent them back to their countrymen with the message that the Tlascalans might come by day or night, they would find the Spaniards ready for them. The doleful spectacle of their comrades returning in this mutilated state filled the Indian camp with horror and consternation. The haughty crest of their chief was humbled. From that moment he lost his wonted buoyancy and confidence. His soldiers, filled with superstitious fear, refused to serve longer against a foe who could read their very thoughts and divine their plans before they were ripe for execution. The punishment inflicted by Cortes may well shock the reader by its brutality, but it should be considered in mitigation that the victims of it were spies, and as such by the laws of war, whether among civilized or savage nations, had incurred the penalty of death. 
The amputation of the limbs was a milder punishment, and reserved for inferior offences. If we revolt at the barbarous nature of the sentence, we should reflect that it was no uncommon one at that day, not more uncommon, indeed, than whipping and branding with a hot iron were in our own country at the beginning of the present century, or than cropping the ears was in the preceding one. A higher civilization, indeed, rejects such punishments as pernicious in themselves and degrading to humanity. But in the sixteenth century they were openly recognized by the laws of the most polished nations in Europe. And it is too much to ask of any man, still less one bred to the iron trade of war, to be in advance of the refinement of his age. We may be content if, in circumstances so unfavorable to humanity, he does not fall below it. All thoughts of further resistance being abandoned, the four delegates of the Tlaxcalan Republic were now allowed to proceed on their mission. They were speedily followed by Sikutenkatl himself, attended by a numerous train of military retainers. As they drew near the Spanish lines, they were easily recognized by the white and yellow colors of their uniforms, the livery of the house of Ticatla. The joy of the army was great at this sure intimation of the close of hostilities, and it was with difficulty that Cortes was enabled to restore the men to tranquillity and the assumed indifference which it was proper to maintain in the presence of an enemy. The Spaniards gazed with curious eye on the valiant chief, who had so long kept his enemies at bay, and who now advanced with the firm and fearless step of one who was coming rather to bid defiance than to sue for peace. He was rather above the middle size, with broad shoulders and a muscular frame intimating great activity and strength. His head was large, and his countenance marked with the lines of hard service, rather than of age, for he was but thirty-five. When he entered the presence of Cortes, he made the usual salutation by touching the ground with his hand, and carrying it to his head, while the sweet incense of aromatic gums rolled up in clouds from the censers carried by his slaves. Far from a pusillanimous attempt to throw the blame on the Senate, he assumed the whole responsibility of the war— he had considered the white men, he said, as enemies, for they came with the allies and vassals of Montezuma. He loved his country, and wished to preserve the independence which she had maintained through her long wars with the Aztecs. He had been beaten. They might be the strangers who, it had been so long predicted, would come from the east to take possession of the country. He hoped they would use their victory with moderation, and not trample on the liberties of the Republic." He came now in the name of his nation to tender their obedience to the Spaniards, assuring them they would find his countrymen as faithful in peace as they had been firm in war. Cortes, far from taking umbrage, was filled with admiration at the lofty spirit which thus disdained to stoop beneath misfortunes. The brave man knows how to respect bravery in another. He assumed, however, a severe aspect, as he rebuked the chief for having so long persisted in hostilities. Had Sicontecatl believed the words of the Spaniards and accepted their proffered friendship sooner, he would have spared his people much suffering, which they well merited by their obstinacy. 
but it was impossible continued the general to retrieve the past he was willing to bury it in oblivion and to receive the tlascalans as vassals to the emperor his master if they proved true they should find him a sure column of support if false he would take such vengeance on them as he had intended to take on their capital had they not speedily given in their submission it proved an ominous menace for the chief to whom it was addressed the cacique then ordered his slaves to bring forward some trifling ornaments of gold and feather embroidery designed as presents they were of little value he said with a smile for the tlascalans were poor they had little gold not even cotton nor salt the aztec emperor had left them nothing but their freedom and their arms he offered this gift only as a token of his good will as such i receive it answered cortes and coming from the tlascalan set more value on it than i should from any other source though it were a houseful of gold a politic as well as magnanimous reply for it was by the aid of this good will that he was to win the gold of mexico thus ended the bloody war with the fierce republic of tlascala during the course of which the fortunes of the Spaniards more than once had trembled in the balance. Had it been persevered in but a little longer, it might have ended in their confusion and ruin, exhausted as they were by wounds, watching, and fatigues, with the seeds of disaffection rankling among themselves. As it was, they came out of the fearful contest with untarnished glory. To the enemy they seemed invulnerable, bearing charmed lives, proof alike against the accidents of fortune and the assaults of man. No wonder that they indulged a similar conceit in their own bosoms, and that the humblest Spaniard should have fancied himself the subject of a special interposition of providence, which shielded him in the hour of battle, and reserved him for a higher destiny. While the Tlascalans were still in the camp, an embassy was announced from Montezuma tidings of the exploits of the spaniards had spread far and wide over the plateau the emperor in particular had watched every step of their progress as they climbed the steeps of the cordilleras and advanced over the broad tableland on their summit he had seen them with great satisfaction take the road to tlascala trusting that if they were mortal men they would find their graves there Great was his dismay when courier after courier brought him intelligence of their successes, and that the most redoubtable warriors on the plateau had been scattered like chaff by the swords of this handful of strangers. His superstitious fears returned in full force. He saw in the Spaniards the men of destiny who were to take possession of his scepter. In his alarm and uncertainty he sent a new embassy to the Christian camp. It consisted of five great nobles of his court, attended by a train of two hundred slaves. They brought with them a present, as usual dictated partly by fear, and in part by the natural munificence of his disposition. It consisted of three thousand ounces of gold in grains or in various manufactured articles, with several hundred mantles and dresses of embroidered cotton, and the picturesque featherwork. As they laid these at the feet of Cortes, they told him they had come to offer the congratulations of their master on the late victories of the white men. 
the emperor only regretted that it would not be in his power to receive them in his capital, where the numerous population was so unruly that their safety would be placed in jeopardy. The mere intimation of the Aztec emperor's wishes, in the most distant way, would have sufficed with Indian nations. It had very little weight with the Spaniards, and the envoys, finding this puerile expression of them ineffectual, resorted to another argument, offering a tribute in their master's name to the Castilian sovereign, provided the Spaniards would relinquish their visit to his capital. This was a greater error. It was displaying the rich casket with one hand, which he was unable to defend with the other. Yet the author of this pusillanimous policy, the unhappy victim of superstition, was a monarch renowned among the Indian nations for his intrepidity and enterprise, the terror of Anahuac. Cortes, while he urged his own sovereign's commands as a reason for disregarding the wishes of Montezuma, uttered expressions of the most profound respect for the Aztec prince, and declared that if he had not the means of requiting his munificence as he could wish, at present he trusted to repay him at some future day with good works. The Mexican ambassadors were not much gratified with finding the war at an end, and a reconciliation established between their mortal enemies and the Spaniards. The mutual disgust of the two parties with each other was too strong to be repressed, even in the presence of the general, who saw with satisfaction the evidences of a jealousy which, undermining the strength of the Indian emperor, was to prove the surest source of his own success. Two of the Aztec missions returned to Mexico to acquaint their sovereign with the state of affairs in the Spanish camp. The others remained with the army, Cortes being willing that they should be personal spectators of the deference shown him by the Tlascalans. Still, he did not hasten his departure for their capital. Not that he placed reliance on the injurious intimations of the Mexicans respecting their good faith. Yet he was willing to put this to some longer trial, and at the same time to re-establish his own health more thoroughly before his visit. Meanwhile messengers daily arrived from the city, pressing his journey, and were finally followed by some of the aged rulers of the Republic, attended by a numerous retinue, impatient of his long delay. They brought with them a body of five hundred temanes, or men of burden, to drag his cannon and relieve his own forces from this fatiguing part of their duty. It was impossible to defer his departure longer, and after mass, and a solemn thanksgiving to the great being who had crowned their arms with triumph, the Spaniards bade adieu to the quarters which they had occupied for nearly three weeks on the hill of Tsompak. End of Book 3 Chapter 4